0: Good evening, I'm Axis. I'm Mona. And you're listening to The Late Night, a horror podcast.
1: Welcome back, everyone. That's right, it's February, a month of romance, awful weather, and many, many holidays. Most of us are going to celebrate with cheap candy while observing Valentine's Day. Others among us may celebrate the groovy Loopercalia. And some may even celebrate self-love on Singles Awareness Day, which falls on February 15th. It's also Black History Month, and the 11th anniversary of Hannah Narodica's Women in Horror Month. In honor of these holidays, we're watching Cole McCarthy's The Girl with All the Gifts from 2016, starring Senia Nanua, Gemma Arterton, and Glenn Close, and we'll be following with Anna Lily Amirpour's A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night from 2014, the first Iranian vampire western starring Sheila Vand, Arash Marandi, and Masuka the Cat. We'll be right back after the tone with our spoiler-filled thoughts. Stay tuned. So, we're back and we hope you enjoyed those movies. So we're going to start with The Girl with All the Gifts, which I believe really should be titled This Little Light of Mine. This Little (laughs) Light of Mine okay? Yeah.
0: I like that. It seems apropos. First off like right off the bat I feel like this movie loves foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Like it starts off with a kitten photo and Melanie's lovely little cell setting up the tragedy of cats we have awaiting us in the rest of the movie. Then there's Melanie's story she writes, which, of course, makes Miss Just No Cry. And then there's that nice little story of Pandora's box introduced right at the beginning to bring things full circle at the end. So right when uh, Melanie makes her uh, dramatic decision, one might say, mm-hmm. at the end to blow everything to hell, mm-hmm. at least for humanity, that is. it's <laughs> She's choosing hope, which I love. She's just not choosing hope for people. Right. It's a real rewrite of the original in a way that I appreciate a lot.
1: I'm kind of waiting for a moment where they... Re- dub in tim curry's voice is oh don't be upset it was a massive killing you know
0: <laughs> i mean it is. it is it is i was so interested when i was reading the wikipedia um the greatest of all sources mm-hmm. i know but hey we love wikipedia uh-huh. donate to wikipedia oh, yeah. right let me backtrack let me backtrack uh Carey, and actually refer mr to Carey. My- Written notes, yeah. So M.R. Carey, (laughs) I wish this was written by Mariah Carey. I am sincerely hoping that M.R. Carey is the pen name for Mariah Carey, and that she is secretly a a zombie horror author because that's an incredible version of events. But the the history of the of the movie itself is that. The movie script and the book were written concurrently by author M.R. Carey, and both were based on his earlier 2013 short story, uh, which was nominated for an Edgar Award. I think it's called Iphigenia and Aulis. I don't know mm-hmm. how to pronounce yep, that, that but right. we'll go with that. I'm always like, what what source language is this? Unclear. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but there, I was looking through... Um, the kind of Wikipedia summary of the book itself because I figured they would be pretty similar and they are since they were written by the same author and written concurrently. Mm -hmm. But like most movies made from a book, things were cut for time. Um, And the two major differences is that in the book, there's another human faction. There are more survivors that live outside of the military base called junkers. Um, They're kind of scavenger packs that roam around and mess with the military. And they were part of bringing down the base at the beginning, which I understand why they cut for time. Mm -hmm but the biggest difference that i find absolutely bizarre and fascinating mm-hmm. is that in the book right before dr caldwell dies she had previously caught one of the feral children and experimented them on them so right before her death she tells melanie that there is no vaccine her and all of her work is a failure there's no way to prevent the infection there's way, no way to treat the infection so, there is no hope for humanity. Right. There is nothing they can do, and they're fighting a losing battle. Everybody's going to succumb eventually. It's just a matter of time. And so, suddenly, Melanie's choice to torch the goddamn place makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Because. And we only well, get that okay. vaguely. I would argue that. It, we
1: only get that vaguely, where.
0: Yeah! It's
1: like she goes back to close and goes, So, I'm human. I'm alive. Mm-hmm. And she's like, Uh huh. <laughs> And it's like and it just sort of clicks for Melanie at that point. It's like, oh then why are we having this conversation? I'm going back outside yeah. and you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like it boils down to the same thing in either case, but in the book it really feels like it's a straightforward kind of, oh well, if there's no point in dragging it out any longer. In the movie, it felt like this complex ethics puzzle where I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. Is this really happening?
1: Absolutely, And that's actually kind of Which what got almost... me. What got me was that she was – that Melanie was waiting for the doctor to sanction her existence in order for her mm-hmm. to go out and make what to me was – the logical choice, right? I mean, it takes Dr. Spock to a very dark level, but it takes utilitarian philosophy and it stands us on its head. You know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Uh, at this point, the uninfected humans are the few and the many are the people who might actually have a shot at living. And those are the infected. So I totally, you know, am very proud of Melanie for her decision.
0: Yes, uh, yeah, she's brilliant. I mean, I 100% agree. And her actress, Senia um, Senia Nanua, she is incredible. I was just so impressed by her throughout this whole movie. I mean, I've seen a lot of child actors yeah. in my life that
1: Senia Nanua brings were- the pain.
0: Yes! She's a goddamn powerhouse. She was filming this movie when she was 12 and 13 years old, and she brings so much. She's a vulnerable little girl, she's a flesh-eating monster zombie, she's an absolutely terrifying Lord of the Flies fight ring contestant. I mean, and every single one of them, she brings such a genuine... Intensity too. I I could gush about her for ages. I'm just so proud of her, so impressed by her. I want to be her.
1: <laughs> and, and you know what the thing is? When you look at it, there was a lot of there was a lot that was going against this movie from its exposition because this is a British post apocalyptic dystopia film, and we have a bunch of them. And they're you know they're not bad films. They're they're not a it's not a bad sub genre to the horror genre, but it is something where you really you know. I would say that zombies are a double-edged sword and it's where you innovate that makes that can really determine where mm-hmm. you whether you succeed or whether you fail. And you know, when we first saw the zombies were sort of like when they activated in the presence of the uninfected, they look kind of like a like a very fucked up version of Pac-Man whenever their symptoms started to flare up. And it was kind of hard to take <laughs> seriously at first. It was like, nah, 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 and you were like watching it going, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, that's that's scary. I mean, but yeah, sooner or later, a the, Pac-Man went. it's like the wind up toy is going to run out and then you just have to wind it up again and, you know, solve problem solved. But it wasn't like that. Oh, so it, it wasn't as scary in the beginning. Um, but I really felt that, you know, that that was. Uh, performance really added that layer that made things scary i mean close also did a great job in terms of mm-hmm. you know adding that somber element and Ardoton also added something with you know with that motherly feeling that maternal feeling where you feel safe but it was nannua's mm-hmm. character that for me really transcended where she was sort of like, and I don't know if anybody else here has ever seen the movie uh, *Day of the Dead*, you know, or *Bub*, but it's it's it was taking those proto uh, sentient zombies and taking it to a completely different place, and I thought it was really beautiful. I thought that the ending yeah, was I really think- innovative.
0: I think that it's her kind of degree of self-awareness that makes her the most horrifying, really, because she's cognizant enough to have a sense of horror in herself. She knows to be afraid of what she can do, but learns to use that as an asset. So I feel like the whole underlying theme is her own development, where she's learning, you know, what she is, what she can do, the implications of that, and then how to transcend that in a way that I think is really wonderful.
1: Agreed. I also think that, Viewers, you know, are very squeamish about it because, or they could be squeamish about it because, you know, of the scene with eating the cat, um, mm-hmm. which I'm kind of disapp- very disappointed it wasn't a marmalade tabby. I would have liked a Garfield nod there, um, <laughs> but I, I do. Feel- Sorry, they didn't
0: write your comedy for you.
1: <laughs> but the the thing for it for me was, you know, so many people got grossed out by that moment. But I also thought, you know, human beings do that every day. Whenever we're eating chicken, we're eating cattle, we're eating lamb chops, we're, we're doing the same thing. We're just not in the mm-hmm. room for it. You know, we like the steak. We just don't like how it's made. So I, yeah. I still think that she's not nearly as savage as, as everybody kind of makes her out to be. It's, it's not savage behavior. It's the way that we all of us would have behaved if we didn't have a food source readily available. So I
0: Yeah, and it's also especially because she's grown up in a cell, she has no concept of what's a pet animal. I mean, all of that is a social construct. <laughs> like the difference where, you know, people get all uppity about people eating dogs in other countries, mm-hmm. which I am the first to, you know, be sad about, but I it's entirely constructed based on well, we decided this one's a pet, so we're sad if somebody's <laughs> mean to it, which I get, but she doesn't have any of that construction. Absolutely. She can probably look at it and say it's cute based on her kitty photo in the cell, but food is food when you're a hungry zombie baby.
1: <laughs> Agreed. Um, so, yeah. I mean, another yeah. alternative title might have been more human than human. <laughs>
0: <laughs> also true. No, and I also i am always so bemused by how books and films kind of represent people who are one step removed from the contemporary as this weird conglomeration of antiquated tribal stereotypes. Mm -hmm. Because I was just looking at these packs of feral children that that they encountered. Um, And they created them as this weird little tribe that seems to echo all of these, you know, stereotypes of uncontacted primitive peoples. I get why they have no language, why they're not speaking, why they're speaking in grunts. Sure, fine, makes sense. They didn't have anybody to model language. But everything else makes no sense. They are surrounded by a sea of adult hungries, people who are wearing contemporary clothing, people who have contemporary haircuts and hairstyles. I mean, maybe they're not modeling makeup, but where did the kids get the face paint from? They're also surrounded by media left behind. There are books everywhere. I'm sure there's videotapes or something. There are so many models for what is the kind of normal thing to do. So, how did they all manage to find little leopard print caftans kind of and dress themselves in scraps and dreadlocks right. and face paint? Yeah,
1: I felt it. I felt it was way too much of a liberty. I was like, "That's either face paint or it's bird poop." And I don't think I've ever seen like, a <laughs> pigeon shit on anything so artfully or in such a shape before. I could be wrong. Hey, viewers, <laughs> listeners, if you uh, want to send in rorschachs of uh, pigeon shit that come in and they make <laughs> sense, feel please feel free.
0: Uh, Manaria.site
1: at gmail.com You know, we want to see everything And, Uh uh, yeah
0: It's time for the science deep dive I got really too excited about Kind of uh, researching fungal infections During this (laughs) Yes, (laughs) I remember Reading about the cordyceps fungus When those zombie ant articles Started popping up, I think it was around 2012 Uh Maybe, I'm not sure exactly But um, this movie Focuses on Ophiocordyceps unilateralis, which is the same fungus that they talked about in those zombie ant articles. It's thought of as a newer discovery, but the first recording, at least in, you know, kind of European recorded history Mm -hmm. was in 1859. So we've known about this for ages. And how this works in nature It's a insect pathogenic fungus that infects the Campotini tribe of ants. It's one specific species, but it can uh, moderately affect other members of the, the family. And it's primarily in South American tropical forests. So some of the basics should seem pretty familiar after you've watched this movie. Once they're infected, the ants behavior patterns entirely change. They're usually in their kind of canopy nests in the trees or they're looking for food down on the ground. Once they're infected, they abandon their work and their nests, and instead, they find a leaf to clamp themselves onto with just incredible lockjaw, and they never move until they die. Clamp onto the leaf, stay there, die, and once they do, a big ol' fungal spore stalk sprouts out of their head, and that's how the fungus propagates. Looks nearly identical to these spore pods that they recreated for the movie, mm-hmm. so really good accuracy there. Wow. What's amazing, though, is the degree of precision in this control. The ants follow incredibly specific directions on where to clamp themselves to death. To quote, again, the greatest fall sources, Wikipedia, quote, The ants generally clamp to a leaf's vein at a height of 26 centimeters above the forest floor, on the northern side of the plant, in an environment with 94 to 95 percent humidity and temperatures between 20 and 30 degrees Celsius or 60 and 86 degrees Fahrenheit. This goddamn fungus knows what it's doing. It's controlling the height they go to, the placement, the geographic placement, the temperature, the humidity level within 1 percent. That's
1: really cool. So...
0: How it controls the ant that much is fascinating. It's also really creepy. It's incredibly (laughs) creepy. It makes this seem more plausible. But then this sent me down a rabbit hole because I discovered that there is another interesting um, relative of the unilateralis uh, fungus called Ophiocordyceps sinensis. Mm. And that one, similar fungus, but it's known for being hosted in worms in the Himalayas. So the... Dead caterpillars are found complete with a big old stalk growing out of their heads, they dig them up out of the fields, and it's extremely valuable as a medicine and health supplement. So the first recorded usage was back in the 15th century, but it hit a brand new global market when the Chinese track and field team beat a whole bunch of world records all at once in 1993, and they attributed their success to the caterpillar fungus which was probably a bold press move because everybody suspected they were doping at the time but they're like no 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 it's caterpillar fungus. So then world demand skyrocketed. Wow. So there's there are a few great articles. There's one in NPR, one in the Atlantic um What's it, about it how under, so many
1: was it marketed under a different name?
0: It's no, it's usually everywhere I can see it now it's The common name is just caterpillar fungus, but they'll call it cordyceps. They call it unilateralis. Hmm. But people buy straight up caterpillar fungus. People are eating. People are
1: ingesting caterpillar fungus.
0: Yes, and it's caterpillar fungus fungus,
1: as a as as a supplement.
0: And it's it's the stalk. It's the fungus itself. And it's the whole caterpillar. They eat the whole thing. But it's become so popular that there are entire Tibetan villages where the one industry is caterpillar harvesting. So they all wait for the right time of year because the the caterpillars plant themselves in the ground, wait for the stalks to grow, and then they go out and they dig out the stalks. And it's incredibly important that you harvest them carefully so that the stalks don't break because it loses its value if the stalk breaks off of the caterpillar but it's so popular now that it's getting over-harvested. So these Tibetan villages are running out of caterpillar fungus because they they all know they're over-harvesting, but there's nothing they can do about it because the demand is so strong. So it's now creating kind of an ecological crisis for this weird par- uh, parasitic fungus because the demand for eating caterpillar fungus is so high.
1: And, uh-huh. and- does that mean that... It, <laughs> doesn't that kind of imply... That it Im- increases the likelihood that the plant will have to adapt to survive if it starts
0: That's to disappear. That's kind of enough? an appropriate. Yeah, it's an appropriate thought. Yeah, um, it's really and, fucking bad. And you know bad. who else? That is who else really, is the really fungus in really most contact with? Yeah, probably, probably the fungus harvesters. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I was, I was well, saying that I, I would love to see. Well, if fungus and you're to listening see...
1: to this, you have something to look forward to. You know, you might be. Uh...
0: Yeah. Yeah, because M.R. Carey wrote a prequel to this, but I, w- I wish he had written a sequel. I was like, I want to see what the world's going to be like after, you know, after the zombie children take over. Maybe the real sequel is going to be up in the Himalayan mountains. It's going to be suddenly hikers go up and find that there's an entire village with weird sprouts coming out of the hillsides. And as they dig them up, it's human bodies of the fungus harvesters. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's Girl With All The Gifts 2.0. <laughs> It'd
1: be very interesting. It'd be worth watching. I'd watch that.
0: Hell yeah. All right. All right.
1: So if you like this film and you're looking for something similar, I think most British post-apocalypse films fit the bill. Uh, Denny Boyle's 28 Days Later is a solid choice. Another is Children of Men from 2006. And if you want to go a little retro, Hardware from 1990 with Dylan McDermott might also fit the bill. So now we're going to talk about Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Um, a
0: masterpiece. A masterpiece.
1: What I really loved about this film is how many milestones it has under its belt already. Uh, 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. First Iranian vampire western. And it's got a Bob, uh, box office to budget, of 628000 to $56,000. Uh, that means it made 11 times its budget. Let that sink yeah, and in. and this is
0: for a movie that was kickstarted. Right. It was a kickstarter, it was a kickstarter.
1: movie. But... I would like to add that Margaret Atwood seemed very enthusiastic about the idea, which was already saying something about where this film was going. Um, for sure. But to make 11 times, a, to to generate 11 times a film's budget as an indie film, not as a studio film, as an indie film, is freaking crazy for a cult film. Because ask anyone about cult films, and they'll tell you that they either lose money or they barely double their money. Um John Carpenter's The Thing, Event Horizon, Exorcist 3, these things may barely double their money. They certainly don't bring home 11 times their budget. As a cult film, the other thing I love is that I don't think it's unfair to say that A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night is quickly becoming today's Nosferatu. And that's not just because it's a black and white vampire film, but because of the music. F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu from 1922 has always been a gothic wonder in cinema, because most of the original recorded score by Hans Erdmann was lost. And so every time someone wants to put Nosferatu out, they technically redo, recomposite, or re-record the music. It's a gothic wonder because each version of Nosferatu that you will view or own, uh, you will end up hearing, or you will likely end up hearing, different music for each time that you watch Mm. it or view it. Um, Nosferatu's legacy is at a point where other music groups have put out alternative music. For instance, there's a version of Nosferatu with music by gothic metal band Typo Negative. And here in Germany, there's a gentleman named Karsten Stefan Graf von Bothmer. And for those of you who are going to Google that afterwards, let me just butcher that into uh, English speak. It's Karsten Stefan Graf von Bothmer, who plays live piano while Nosferatu plays. He usually plays a, a series of silent films. But Nosferatu is definitely one of the most popular in his entourage. Um, And with A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, you can watch the film with the original soundtrack, which is made up of Iranian indie bands. Or you can watch it with subtitles to entirely different music uh, by the experimental band, The Black Heart Rebellion. Uh, And we're going to put a link to the band camp for that band so that you can watch it that way in the description of the podcast.
0: I feel like I understand why it became kind of such an inspirational project, because there's, you know, the album that came out, uh, Amir Poor, the director, is working on turning it into a graphic novel. I'm not sure if that's come out yet or not. Um, but it's just such a captivating film. I, I love the entire creation, the atmosphere that it has. The entity of Bad City itself, they've created this, this fictional city In a version of Iran filmed in California, and while I'm definitely no expert on Iran or really California (laughs) for that matter, I feel like I know what it's like to be there. Uh The kind of the texture they create with the music, with the the filming, with the cast of characters is so rich and it pulls on the grittiness of cities in old noir films and the grunge of modern cities. And it manages to feel both entirely familiar and absolutely and utterly alien, which I love. And I think one of the things that I like a lot that you talked about um, in terms of the cinematic references, where it's looking at Lynch, where it's looking at Nosferatu, it does such a good job of feeling incredibly contemporary, but also going back to these really old kind of references. And one of the little details that I enjoyed a lot is that when you look at the credits for this movie, almost all of the characters are listed by archetype. So you have Hussein, his uh, Arash's father, who's listed as the junkie. Saeed, who's the pimp. Shada, who's the princess. There are all of these archetypal characters, which feels like it's going back to Commedia dell'arte and other kind of theatrical references, going back also to, you know, uh, to folktales and myths, these kinds of archetypal characters that we know and we can pull on. But while it does that, it doesn't let these characters become just plain stereotypes. I feel like it really stretches those forms. Like one of the characters, uh, uh, Ati, Mozan Marno, She's listed as the prostitute, and that's you know kind of a, a difficult term now. Um, nowadays, uh, it, it's better to you know say sex workers. If for pe- at least that's the preferred kind of terminology from people who work in the industry. But it doesn't let prostitute become a reductive term, which I like. She's such a nuanced character. She's a character with her own agency, who works entirely independently and as her own character in opposition, really, to the pimp, to Dominic Raines. Um, and I love how this this movie kind of recognizes all sorts of different minority groups, all sorts of different kind of demographics without necessarily making that the talking point. It's just a natural part of the movie. I mean, and I think that's really recognized by Sheila Vond playing the girl, mm-hmm. the va- you know titular vampire, the girl who walks home alone at night and how she interacts with these characters she's good to other women she's good to sex to sex workers she's you know maybe questionable to children and not great to the homeless but she's still really (laughs) using you kind of introducing the lens for you know what she believes is good yeah and it's valuing gentleness it's valuing kindness There's also trans representation. I don't want to jump to conclusions about, you know, gender identity, but there's the rockabilly character that we see brought up a couple of times who appears to be possibly a man in JAG, possibly a transgender woman, who's just kind of introduced as a natural part of the cityscape. Um, And it's a character without commentary. It's just somebody who lives and breathes and is part of Bad City, which I think is lovely. Um, I also just adore how uh, Poor creates the girl character because just the title, like hearing the title of this movie, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, it makes me feel stressed. Yeah. <laughs> like the yeah. idea of that situation as, you know, a a young woman who's walked through cities home alone at night. It's a stressful concept. Mm-hmm. But Watching her be a predator in an environment where she is so clearly expected to be prey feels so powerful. It's very satisfying. Watching her stand on those street corners with not an ounce of fear and just all the confidence in the world in her eyes is just exhilarating. And I think, you know, Amir Poor just created such a wonderful world and it's a vision that I think represents both a realistic but a hopeful version of things, because she recognizes many problems in this. It's not like she has created some utopia, but also it's a way of kind of representing what she finds important in a flawed world. And so I'm really, I'm excited to see to see more from her because I like this so much. And I liked learning about her history as well. Um, there was an article in the LA Times by Betsy Sharkey, and a little quote from there. She says, Amir Poor's fascination with macabre storytelling can be traced to her first experiments with film, a slasher short shot with her dad's camera when she was 12. The writer-director's 2012 animated animated short, A Little Suicide, was about a cockroach's mental breakdown. Next up, she's working on a cannibal love story, and that was The Bad Batch, which came out a little while ago. And that, you know, had Suki Waterhouse, Jason Momoa, Keanu Reeves... And she's also directed episodes of Legion, Castle Rock, and The Twilight right. Zone. She is thriving. I was yeah. so happy to see that this has really been, I think, a springboard for her. She's doing great work, working with big names, it's continuing to put her voice milestone. out there.
1: Milestone absolutely. after milestone, absolutely. It's really, and it's so. It really is. It's 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 very inspiring to see, especially in the film industry, where um, very few women get to be directors. Where this woman. It not only thrives, but she's truly, um, you know, even to create your own subgenre in a field is just an amazing feat. And the fact that she came out and just said, Mm -hmm. okay, this is the first Iranian vampire western. And we all just went with it. (laughs) We all watched it. We were like, (laughs) yep, this is the first vampire Iranian western. So it was really cool. Yeah,
0: fuck yeah, it is. So,
1: yeah, yeah, I'm really with her. I really think it's, I'm really looking forward to seeing what she does next. So...
0: Absolutely. And... Even in this movie, it's it's one that was interesting because I looked at the cast and I did not think I recognized anyone, but yeah, that was it has right. some sneaky powerhouses. Yeah. Like, I was looking through the IMDb's of the actors. They have been in everything. Marshall Monash, who played Hussain, Arash's dad. He's in, been in The Big Lebowski. Pirates of the Caribbean. Scrubs. Will and Grace. How I Met Your Mother. Mazan Marno, who is Ati, was in House of Cards, A Blacklist, Bones, Mentalist. She was a voice in Skyrim, which is a fascinating <laughs> turn of events. Dominic Raines who plays the most disgusting drug dealer in the world but looks lovely and does not have uh, the word sex tattooed on his neck in real life. It's important to point out. Um, he's been in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Chicago Med. He had a recurring role on General Hospital. And then there was also, oh, what's his name? Where is he? Yeah, uh, DJ Porno, who I assume must have been in the party scene. Probably. I hardly even remember him. That's Pejvadat, who ha- who's been on Bones for years now, like the most recognizable face to me, I didn't even realize he was in the movie. Mm -hmm. So it's, I love seeing her prioritize these uh, Iranian and American Iranian actors, getting them credits. And I'm always happy to see actors that I know I should know at this point that I've seen in so many different places, get those kind of big credits. And this is, you know, recognition making them more recognizable in a way that I appreciate. And you know, now next time I go back and I watch an episode of Will and Grace, I'll probably recognize Marshall Manash.
1: I mean, the only one out of that whole cast who I feel deserves more press is Masuka the cat. I really am kind of Masuka! sad that, that, that Masuka has only done one film. Um, I
0: I cannot wait for Masuka's next film credit. I, I'm going to be first in line for that movie. I'm going to be at the doors, ready to see Masuka's second film. It's
1: going to be amazing. Unsung hero amazing. of this movie.
0: Absolutely.
1: I mean, the other thing is also, like, you had pointed out the other night that there was a sort of a, an interesting sort of link between our pairing, where we had the girl with all the gifts, where the cat gets eaten, and then this film where you know the cat is kind of an antagonist You know? yes! kind of a silent antagonist i mean all cats are silent antagonists <laughs> technically but the way the cat's like you you have you know it has my wife's eyes it's looking at me it's like that's right i am looking at you shame <laughs> like, shame, you. shame. <laughs> you know even even in the car just before the film ends it's just like yeah man she's a vampire just roll with it <laughs> it's gonna be great you're gonna see.
0: Yeah, where are my goddamn treats? Like we've dealt with the big <laughs> right, issues, right. now give me my paper <laughs> <liver> treats. Exactly.
1: <laughs> well,
0: uh, and Masuka, Masuka does have his own IMDb page. I'm excited to see more credits me too. fill it out. Make All it right. happen,
1: Masuka. The world is waiting for you.
0: I believe in you.
1: Now, if you like this movie, other than the obvious choice of FW Murnau's Nosferatu from 1922, I would say A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night is so versatile that it pairs well with almost anything by David Lynch, like Eraserhead or Lost Highway, or the work of Panos Kazmatos, like Mandy. Um, I think Jim Jarmusch's Only Lovers Left Alive and Ty West's The Innkeepers could also fit. Uh, They're definitely uh, slow-paced enough. Okay, well we hope you enjoyed the review section. I know we didn't do My Bloody Valentine this month, but it is worth noting that in addition to all the other causes that get crammed into February, February 14th is National Organ Donor Day. Thousands of people die each year because they're waiting for an organ transplant. And it's arguably one of the most avoidable tragedies, it's cost-effective, and it's low-maintenance. Because, like donating blood, you don't need to open your wallet to help. In fact, even if you're squeamish about needles or surgeries, you don't need to worry about organ donation because it happens after you die normally. In addition, if you agree to donate your organs after you pass, you might save over 70 people. To learn more about how you can help, go to DonateLife.net in the United States, or if you live in Canada, you can visit BeADonor.ca. Up next is guest horror author Christy Nogle with The Horror News. So if you're a horror author, stay tuned.
2: Are you an aspiring horror author looking for a home for your spooky stories? Submissions have reopened for Tales to Terrify, looking for short horror, dark fantasy, and disturbing fiction. Manuscripts can be up to 10,000 words, double-spaced, 12-point Courier New or Times New Roman font, and in Microsoft Word or Rich Text format. Please include your author name, title, and word count on the first page simultaneous submission is allowed. For more information, please visit tales to com forward slash submissions. Next, The Dark, a monthly online magazine, is currently seeking horror and dark fantasy fiction from 2,000 to 6,000 words. Simultaneous submissions are not allowed. For more information, visit thedarkmagazine.com forward slash submission hyphen guidelines and madness heart press has three submission calls first there's the annual trigger warning anthology submissions will end either once enough stories are accepted or on february 28th 2020 the theme is psychosis with a maximum word count of 1,500 words. Next, there's the annual Devouring Earth submission call. For 2020, the theme is Kaijus and Gigantic Monsters, with a minimum word count of 1,500 words. Submissions will close when enough stories have been collected or on April thirtieth, 2020. Finally, the annual Corners of the World From the page, they ask, This year, we are looking for Latinx and Mesoamerican authors to submit stories that pertain to the legends, folklore, culture, and fears that exist within and surround the cultures of Central and South America, as well as those that have emigrated to North America, bringing their stories with them. To learn more, visit madnessheart.press. Forward slash submissions. If you are a short fiction publication venue and you think your horror submission calls should be listed, please contact Moner T. Lawrence at MonerLawrence at hotmail.com. The Late Night,
1: a horror podcast, is brought to you by Moner T. Lawrence. Find us at Moneria.com and The Late Night Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter mm mmm